Welcome. You're about to be ushered past the velvet rope and into a world of hyper-effective salesmanship that's understood and used only by the world's most notoriously rich and successful marketers. We're taking a journey deep inside the human brain, past the surface clutter, and into the psychological insights to answer the one crucial question, what makes people buy? I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, along with the most ripped off and respected copywriter alive, John Carlton, and this is Psych Insights for Modern Marketers. Hi, welcome to Psych Insights for Modern Marketers. It's Kevin Rogers here with John Carlton. Hot topic today, all about partnerships. If you are in this business of marketing or any level of entrepreneurship, you are going to ultimately face a situation where somebody offers you or you offer somebody a chance to partner together, whether it be on a project or on a, on, on a new business venture. And uh, there are lots of levels of peril that can come with partnerships just like any relationships there's um contracts to be dealt with there's it's it's a it's a quick trip to the bedroom and so john and i (laughs) john and i deal with this quite a bit uh both as in our freelance career and our and our business career Uh, we've both had long-term partners and um, we both deal all the time with clients who have partners which can be a very interesting view of, of partnering. So uh, this is something, John, that I've come to you with uh, several times over my career when, when I've been uh, confronted with potential partnerships and you've given me all kinds of great advice on it. So I thought we'd, uh, we'd share some of those insights today. Yeah. And of course, it should be noted that all of the insight I have to any of this comes from uh, being beaten black and blue in the real world by <clears throat> making all the mistakes that to me seemed rational, logical, seemed like they seemed like a good idea at the time, seemed like there was no downside. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I would get, I either got burned or I got <clears throat> put into situations that forced me to realize that. Wow, there, you know, in the human experience, there is this big glob of experience that that you will have Mm. called relationships. Yeah. And the big breakthrough I had is that to help explain it to other people and explain it to myself and remind myself of both the perils and the good parts of it was that all of the uh, relationships I've had in my life, the ones that you know, I, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't think of my friendship with, um, you know, uh, the kid across the street or the kid down the street or any of this as a quote unquote relationship. It was a we were friends. Right. But, you know, I, I didn't realize that even as a kid, we you know, you have to navigate, you know, if his parents don't like you, yeah. you know, when he can play or can't play what he can do and can't do. And of course, I was the kid that was leading everybody off to you know, to the dump to deal with dangerous, sharp objects. And, you know, we'd always come back bloody with, you know, ripped knees on our Levi's and we're jumping off of the garage, you know, pretending we can fly with a sheet, you know. And so, you know, there were people that were definitely banned out of my life. And I, I, I remember being hurt, too, when... One of my one of the kids down the street, we're on the same little league team, but he was a year older than me. And it didn't matter for most of our youth and we're eight, nine, ten. Suddenly, though, he's turning 12 or 13 and I'm still 10 or 11. I forget what it was. And he, his friends started bugging him that he was hanging around with this kid, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he had to tell him we couldn't be friends anymore. You know, wow. just Break up, and, broke up with you. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> Dear John, you know, it was I, I just, you know, I remember distinctly, you know, hanging up the phone and being I didn't understand at the time. But, yeah, it was kind of heartbroken. It was like, wait a minute. I thought we we're going to go to the dump and throw rocks at bottles, you know, yeah. and, and we weren't going to do that. And, you know, I moved on, had uh, other friends. And then, of course, moving into the, uh, you know, once puberty hit and then starting to deal with girls and realizing that, you know, the word relationships started coming up and then having them and going through all of that. You know, and when when, when I got into business, the guy who made me understand relationships really was Jay Abraham. When when I got in, 
um, I had, you know, I, 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 I kind of had to invent being a freelancer on my own because I'd never met a freelancer before. I had no idea how the gig worked. I just knew they existed. And, you know, there was a, a rational element to figuring it out. But what I, what I realized as I went is that the second job at any of the agencies I went to meant I was having a relationship. Mm-hmm. I was having a relationship with the receptionist, mm-hmm. with the VP who hired me, with the you know, with the other writers, if, if there were staff writers. And, you know, I, I, I didn't take any of that stuff for granted. And I was starting to work all this out in my head. And then I then Jay came along and he was the master of what became known as affiliate marketing. But he called it parasitical marketing, I think, at the time wow. or parasitical relationships. But he didn't mean it in a bad way. He meant that work out relationships so that when the other guy makes money, you make money so that, you know, you share your list with other people for an exchange to be able to go to their list and he worked it all out. He didn't, you know, he he he, he would also routinely, you know, I don't mean to trash Jay, but I, I don't think Jay would be shy about sharing this himself if he was here. You know, he would screw most of those relationships up just because he knew what he wanted and he was going to go after. And he was a bit of a bull in, in the China shop as far as reaching his own goals. Mm-hmm. And it was up to you to keep up. He was not going to keep reaching back and pulling you back up, you know, over the cliff if he got over the cliff first. <clears throat> that, you know, that didn't mean he was callous or a sociopath or anything. He just had a clear vision of going ahead. And it reminded me, fortunately at that time, of some girlfriends I had had. I mean, if, if you're lucky in life, before you get married, you go out with um, you go out with a, a good girl, a bad girl, yeah. a psychotic girl, yeah. you know, a party girl. You know, you, you get to sample these things rather than having to rely on the, you know, on Hollywood to tell you what it's like and stuff. Mm. And hopefully they're, they're, they're brief, happy relationships or at least you learn something so, so that when you settle down with, with um, someone, as we all tend to do as, as, as we get older, you know, you're, you're able to put that person in a um, – or you're able to maintain a relationship that is conscious rather than unconscious. So you're not always reacting, but rather you're being proactive yeah, in the whole thing. That's a great point. You know, I never thought of it that way before. If I think about my relationship with my wife, you know, going into it, I knew I loved her. It was sort of a love at first sight thing. We, we took a long time to actually get together because we met before I even started traveling as a road comic. But what's interesting is I realized thinking of it now that all I had when we decided to make a real go of it was a list of don'ts. <laughs> I didn't have a criteria for, oh, we got to have this in common and that. It was either going to, the chemistry was going to work and she wasn't going to be psycho. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was pretty much it. But without those experiences of all those, whoa, don't want to see that again, mm-hmm. uh, it could have been dangerous. Well, uh, Gary Halbert's famous ad where he found uh, Paulette, who he had a relationship with for the next, I'm going to say, at least five years and maybe even longer than that. And I met him right about that time. That's when he and I started working together. So I know the whole genesis of the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, his ad was, I believe, full of a lot of don'ts. You know, you, you're you not going to be a smoker. You're, you know, no kids, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, he violated it, which is another rule of <laughs> relationships. Yeah. He set up a very uh, uh, strict uh, do and don't list. You know, she, you know, if, if you're going to be my girlfriend, you will have these attributes. You will not have these attributes. You will do these things. You will not do these things. And he set it up and it made the ad very famous. You know, he got on radio stations and stuff and he had a flood. I saw the box of responses. It was amazing how, how, how many women responded to that. And um, he violated, you know, like half of them when he when he finally chose the, the woman that uh, that became his girlfriend for, for so many years. She was a smoker, although she tried to quit. You know, she came with. Two young children, yeah. uh, recently divorced, I think. I'm not even sure she was, well, I'm not going to get into that. But anyway. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I, I wonder if you were to look through those responses, how many of those women were up for the challenge of changing his mind about that stuff? You know, you bring that up, and I hadn't, I, I wasn't going to talk about that, but here's the thing about that. I don't know if you ever ran an ad or not. I actually had run an ad myself in the local beach paper. They had just started a section of, you could, uh, in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, you could have a little mailbox and you would run an ad in their paper in the, in the one ad section under, I, I forget what they called it. This is the, it was a nascent area of meeting. 
you know, other than meeting by happenstance in a coffee shop or through friends. So, mm-hmm. so you'd write a little ad and people would respond and you'd have a little mailbox and it would be physical letters mm-hmm. that you're trading back and forth. So I already had experience in this stuff. And I realized that people, um, people, women from, from my, from my standpoint, women have since verified this. People just ignore it. People ignore what you want and what you yeah. don't want when mm-hmm. you write this stuff out. <clears throat> they will <clears throat> make us, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, I would always put, as Gary did, you know, sense of humor an absolute must. <laughs> it's pretty funny because Paul Ladd, who he was with, had no sense of humor <laughs> whatsoever. It was, and it was, used to drive me nuts. But, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I would have women come, come back and tell a bad joke, you know, or something, you know, just to prove I have a sense of humor to tell a joke, which, mm-hmm. of course, as you and I know, you know, the humor I'm looking for is witticism is back and forth is a, yeah. an understanding of what's funny and what's not not an ability to tell a joke and but that was the best they could do the the women who actually had a sense of humor would actually incorporate it in their response you know it was mm-hmm. just you know well you you seem like a son of a bitch i'd never want to sleep with so let's get together you know that <laughs> right. th- those are the ones that you know you realize what's going on you're you're, you're playing above the rim with that kind of stuff mm-hmm. right and when you bring this back to to the business aspects, and just to finish the the part with, with Jay, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Jay was a, you know, <clears throat> to the casual observer, a guy like Jay was a one man band more or less, because Jay was the you know if if you dealt with Jay quote unquote or Jay's world, <clears throat> you may, you know, he did have a secretary slash receptionist. But he also had a manager. He had a guy in the office who was actually Jay's manager who would deal with a lot of the people, the clients. But the people always thought of Jay as being this one-man band, and he wasn't. He had an organization. It was about three people on the payroll plus this whirling world around him of people like me who are freelancers and stuff. And, you know, and I traded doing free writing for him in exchange for hanging around his office. Best deal I ever did. So I wrote essentially for free. But I, you know, when I was out and about, I would just stop by Jay's office, walk in, be totally welcome, be able to walk into his office, walk all around. I had total run of the place. And it was, that was where a big part of my education happened. (laughs) And I noticed how these relationships were going. Jay did not have a good relationship with his partner quote unquote, the guy who was like managing the joint. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, they they didn't talk. They weren't friends. They didn't hang out together. This guy had a tough job, but he did it because the money was good. Jay had like no relationship with the receptionist whatsoever. Um, and it, and it, it looked dysfunctional on a lot of levels, but it worked on the business level because Jay was one of those guys who was, you know, an adult in the room and he was going to get what he wanted. So it was up to you to make sure that what he wanted was going to jive with what you wanted. So you would get what you wanted in the course of him getting what he wanted. Yeah. And, you know, we all know have, or have known or maybe we were people like that in the in, in, in the dating field. But there's you know, there's there's these instantaneous establishments of alpha control, you know, the alpha in the room. And, you know, Gary Halbert and I, one of the reasons we got together is that he was a he was a classic alpha, a silver backed, uh, you know, ape, as we used to say, you know, the biggest guy, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Yeah. And I was uh, a shrink actually told me this. He says, you know, he, you know the shrink says, I, I know what you are, Carl. And don't don't think I'm not doing this. You know, he says, you're a secret alpha. Hmm. You know, you like you like to maintain that you're not. And you're behind the scenes, but you're actually controlling a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I, you know, I, I it was repelled by the silverback males stuff of Gary. You know, mm-hmm. Gary used to say his favorite hobby was self-aggrandizement. <laughs> you know, he would build himself up and he was very comfortable with that. He liked that. Yeah. I was appalled by that. You know, I'm a yeah. shy kind of reserved guy, right. but I wanted the effect of that, too. So so I, I started realizing all these different levels of stuff that are going on and um, of course, what Jay was doing was setting up partnerships all the time. This is to finish the thought. I'm sorry I took such a long way to get around. But he would set up – when he took on a client, it was actually a partner relationship. And I realized this. It was different than me going down and doing some writing for an agency downtown where I might start to have a relationship with the creative director. And if she liked me, she'd call me back and I would get more jobs. So I, I worked it out that way. But 
you know, the, my stuff was always stepped on. They never ran the stuff I wrote as it was written. It have to, you know, it was, it was like a copy, excuse me, by, by committee. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff was going on. With Jay, though, th- there was like control. It was like, it, it was kind of like the old uh, our gang things. It was like, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And then somebody would naturally fall in charge. So Jay was spanky, you know, you know, and, and it's just, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. And, and, and if people happily obeyed, then everything went fine for the length of the partnership. Yeah. I noticed some of these people who had, who were essentially partners in a project, uh, co-owners of the idea or the project, uh, they might wind up doing a lot of the work, but I noticed they were often surprised when there was no subsequent partnering to be done. When the job was over, the job was over. Uh, uh, it was up to you if you wanted to bring something else to the game to present another project to him. Mm-hmm. But he was not going to do that. He was not going to expend any energy trying to think of other ways to work with you because mm. there was a long line of other people waiting waiting to work with him. So he was in, he was in the, the alpha seat. So I, um, these, these realizations just start tumbling into me about, you know, how and I'm not going to get into the gory details, but, you know, I came of age um, living in a place in, in, in high school. My high school was more or less run on rules from the 50s, even though it was the late 60s. And I was an hour outside of L.A. So, there, you know, I had hippies in my class and I had sexual uh, adventures and all this stuff, but I was not one of them. And I I wanted to play sports and I was just observing everything that was going on. A year, I mean, months out of graduating high school, I completely transformed. I became a revolutionary type hippie. This is 1970. My college career was 70 to 74. Hmm. And that was the, you know, the height of the sexual revolution. Everything was changing. My girlfriend that I had in the dorm, I moved in with her in the dorm. You know, we were living together actually illegally, I, I believe. Uh, she informed me that there was no good girl, bad girl dynamic going on. It was like I had to get that out of my head, which was a 50s con- construct. Mm. You know, you fooled around with bad girls, you married a good girl. And right. it was, effemi- you know, the second wave of feminism that was sweeping over was just destroying all of that. It was like, if mm. you want to have fun, if you want to essentially get laid, you got to get rid of this stuff because... The dinosaurs in the dorm were not having any fun at all. Mm. And um, so so I, I got a good dose of all kinds of relationships and all kinds of experimenting in the way men and women work together. And it was a great it was a great education. I really enjoyed it. I got my heart broken. My heart soared, you know, in the clouds. I had all of this stuff going on in a very, very short period of time. It was a graduate course in relationships. So when I looked back to tap into that for understanding more about how partnering might work because one of the things I realized is that as much as I, like Jay, wanted to either present myself or be a um, <clears throat> solo performer, you know, a, a literal freelancer, a, you know, a guy on his own making it all work, doing the hero story, mm-hmm. in truth, my career didn't really take off until I started hooking up with people. I hooked up with uh, John Finn, who was an agent at the time, who hooked me up with other established writers, and I ghost wrote for them. And, you know, these were partnerships. These were relationships. Some of them lasted a year. Some of them lasted one project. Some of them uh, lasted for, you know, a, a very, very long time. And it was... It, it, it was great. It was uh, it was mentoring. It was uh, partnering. It was uh, moving beyond the restrictions of trying to do it all on your own. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. You know, I want to go back quickly to you brought up a great point about personality types and knowing yourself. Right. right. I think that's a key thing. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, I know you mentioned on Facebook that you're um, rereading on the road. And yeah. I think one thing you and I have in common is, is sort of a deep identity with Sal Paradise in regards to the fact... Which, which is Jack Kerouac's uh, character in On the Road. Right. And very much him. It's, it's all very autobiographical. Um, and so that he was, he was the observer, right? He, he, was, right. he was learning about himself and he was fascinated about his, his own inner workings. But mostly he was just thrilled to sit and watch all these crazy characters around him and sort of report on it. Um, and, and I think, you know, that all great copywriters 
Well, it's one or the other, but you, you have to have, you know, that, that, that falls into empathy and all these other, um, you know, just motivation, just being fascinated yep. by, by the people's motivations. And um, it also is an important thing to discover about yourself so that you can begin to match personalities. Like, I don't know how effective these personality tests are. And yeah, I would certainly never ask somebody, Hey, before we do this, what yeah. are your, you an ENTJ? <laughs> yeah, what's your number? You know? Right. Um, but, um, it, it is important to do an internal dialogue. And I, I don't know if we've talked about this on, on this show, but, um, you, something you taught me is, you know, t- take a minute, take a walk with yourself and, and ask the, yourself the deep questions. What, what do I want from this? What am I good at? What makes me happy? You know, what things have I falsely labeled myself as that I'm truly maybe not? Mm-hmm. And at the end, of, you know, who, who can I bring in or what kind of person do I need to help fill that gap and round this out? You know, that's what a healthy partnership is before you get into all the personality stuff. That can ruin it, but it's a, it's a, it's an issue of practicality first, and that begins with taking inventory. And uh, Jack Kerouac's character in On the Road actually amplifies one of the dangers that happen, especially to uh, introverts, to writers, and to entrepreneurs who work who think they work better alone. When you meet a quote unquote stronger personality, and that doesn't mean they're stronger than you physically, that means it's a more dominant, let's call it an amplified uh, uh, a personality, a big personality, one that fills the room. Yeah. Uh, it, introverts are often bullied or allow themselves to be taken in by extroverts who, you know, who, who like, um, like uh, Moriarty, Dean Moriarty, which is. Um, uh, what's his name in, in the book? Um, uh, Neil Cassidy. Yeah, Neil Cassidy, who is just this bound, guy of boundless energy, of, mm-hmm. of boundless sexual reserves, of always tapping his foot and needing action and needing to Charm go. anybody, yeah. Right, but what happens to the to Sal happened to me when, when I was younger. I would often find myself doing this. I would start to adopt the uh, verbal tics of some of the guy, uh, guys I was hanging out with who had big, oversized personalities. Yeah. And I would catch myself um, not wanting to, quote, be them, uh, unquote, but rather being so influenced by it that uh, as I went into my extrovert personality, which, which is like a coat that introverts put on when they, when they need to be an extrovert, mm-hmm. you know, I was heavily influenced by, the, by, by some of the larger personalities around me. Yeah. And I, I tried to stop that because it, I actually had some friends say, John, you've changed since you started hanging out, hanging out with uh, so-and-so. Yeah. And, and I would think, wow, you know, I, I actually have. I'm, you know, it's, it, it, but it, that was mostly when I was younger. And I noticed that in, in, um, in On the Road, how much Kerouac was influenced. And I, rereading it, I've actually come across two instances that he's written about where friends say, I don't like you when you hang around Dean Mor- mm-hmm. Moriarty. His, his aunt slash mother said it. Mm-hmm. And his friends uh, said it. And Ann Charters, who did his biography or his uh, yeah his 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 biography? It actually mm-hmm. does the forward to many of the versions of On the Road. Um, you know, talked about it too. How people didn't like him around there. He liked himself very much around there because it was alive and stuff. But he had to cut himself off of it. Mm-hmm. So Kerouac knew that he would die if he became Dean Moriarty or if he allowed Dean Moriarty to dominate him uh, to the point that he gave up his own goals and stuff and became a partner in the adventures that Dean was going on. So while he was doing that, while he was going after adventures, going cross country, driving with Dean one time, hitchhiking on his own other times, always having Dean in mind, uh, he had to eventually break away from it. He had to, he had to find out who he was in this mess and, and move back from it. And it damaged the relationship. And, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of things going on. These guys weren't trying to make money together. Yeah. But in a way, Jack Kerouac looked at it as a semi-professional relationship because he knew he was going to be writing about it. He right. knew this needed to be mined. And he threw himself into the research, essentially. Right. Uh, th- this may be going over the head of anybody who hasn't read On the Road, but it's su- it's such an iconic novel. It's it's such a part of the American uh, you know uh, uh, consciousness mm-hmm. that I think most people understand. It's just 
the 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 American dream, as outsiders understand it, is get a good job, marry a good woman, have two point five kids and a house in the suburbs. And the other side of that is the side that a lot of people, certainly the writers, Kevin, that you and I hang out with, and and, and uh, other people are looking at the other side of that. And some people may call it a darker side. I just call it a more interesting side, which is there's a lot more to life than just settling down as fast as you can in your twenties. Yeah. Um, and it's the same in business. I think entrepreneurs often come from a job where they, you know, where they could sit at that desk for the rest of their days and get a retirement, or at least that was the classic way of looking at it for many years in the American life. And they just say, "I don't want to do this." And a lot of entrepreneurs take a pay cut when they go off on their own. A lot of entrepreneurs encounter problems immediately. It's not an easy ride. And if they have someone with them in a personal relationship, a wife, for example, or a husband, if they're, if, if they're a woman doing this, <clears throat> uh, or if they're gay, I guess, um, you know, the, a, a spouse who says, no, I don't want you to do this. I'm not going on this what you call an exciting entrepreneurial ride. You know, yeah. I'm not going on the ride with you. I want stability. And then you have to realize, wow, we just came to a crossroads here. And either I'm going to give in hmm. or they're going to give in, but we ain't going together down one of these forks of, of the road. And this is the way a lot of things happen. I, I just want to say, you know, just tying this back into business, mm -hmm. <clears throat> when when you get into business, what's, you know, and you're choosing somebody and you think, you know, I'm tired of working alone. I'm going to bring a partner on. And you look at the people around you, people who are available to you to become a partner, you may not, no matter how aware you are of what you're doing, you may not automatically choose the person who fills in the blanks and what you bring to the game. Uh, as, as you said, you know, the, the person that, you know, fills in the, the blanks of what you have, mm -hmm. um, which would be a perfect fit. If it was hand in glove, that would be great. Very few times does that ever happen in, in human relationships. There's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. So what happens is what's good is good. So if you like hanging out with somebody, you're friends with them, you're doing things, and you decide to become business partners, it's much like marrying somebody that you hang out with and have fun with. Yeah. You know, and while it's fun, it's fun. But there's, you know, if you don't understand how the two of you are going to do conflict resolution when arguments happen. If you don't understand how bad it could be, you know, there was a joke going around when I was growing up and, you know, this is kind of sexist, but it applies to everybody. It's like, you know, never, you know, you don't know a woman, actually, you don't know someone until you've seen them cold, lost, tired, and hungry. Tired. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. And then you see the quote unquote real them. Well, that's, you know, that's not the real them, but that's a portion of them. Right. You're going to see how they are when they're cold, wet, tired, lost, An and, and, and hungry. Yeah. yeah. And how they handle that, it's kind of like a simple thing on dating sites. They talk about watch how the other person, you know, on a first date handles the waiter or waitress. Right. You know, that's an insight into the way they deal with other people. It could be a deal killer. It could be just something you become aware of. And maybe it can be changed. You know, I was certainly able to be changed. I was very malleable when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. When when I moved in with my girlfriend in the dorm, I was 21 going on 15. I mean, I was so inexperienced at the time. And she was uh, uh, 18 going on 30. You know, mm -hmm. she was very experienced. And and I was, you know, it, I, even though I presented myself as this put together, you know, kind of wacky dude, you know, who had it all, who had it all figured out. In truth, I didn't. And I was very open and willing to adapt to anything. So I learned a lot and I was willing to learn how to how to be a, a better man, how to be a better boyfriend, how to be a you know, how, how to, to do my part of making a relationship work, which isn't standard equipment in human beings. Right. We don't come into adulthood, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing how to, how to make things work. Right. And often our parents aren't helping us at all. Our parents have distant or weird or vacuous relationships or, you know, a lot of us, as we talked about in the other show, you know, uh, uh, people come from divorce or broken families or all kinds of th things going into the mix that 
nothing nixes the possibility of future relationships. It's just it might raise the level of consciousness you'll need to attain before you have a good one. Right. So right. so when you're when when you're in a business, you know, I I'm one of those guys who didn't necessarily follow my advice. I became business partners with Stan, who I was friends with for 15 years at the time. And he and I had to make an agreement that if the business part of our agreement here ever infringed on the friendship, we would end the business part. And we haven't had to do that. We've come close. <clears throat> but I had been with him in enough situations where I understood how we did conflict resolution because we had traveled in Europe together for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I had watched him go through some relationships. He watched me go through some some other relationships. We knew how, how things were. So we went with our eyes wide open. And even so, there were some problems here and there. But we've been partners for a very, very long time. Very happy with the guy. He's the first guy I call for advice when I need stuff. I'm the first guy he calls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but we totally understood. And this should have, from the outside, been a match made in heaven. Yet every match made in heaven is still going to have some demons, you know, hovering around the edges. Mm-hmm. Nobody's perfect. Nobody brings a clean slate into a relationship. In business, this is amplified in it's mostly about money. A good marriage you know, you should figure out how you feel about money and how the other person feels about money before you get in deep with someone. Yeah. Because money is the, you know, one of the top reasons why people get divorced. So-and-so is not making enough. So-and-so is spending too much. You know, the, the other person is, is you know, uh, you know doesn't tip enough. There all, all these problems come up with money. In business, that's the main thing. It's all about money. Right. Money is the sex and having children of of being married, you know, all wrapped in one, you know, what the results are. How, how are you going to handle failure, especially in an entrepreneurial adventure uh, where failure is very, very possible and, in fact, sometimes guaranteed? Yeah. <clears throat> Most entrepreneurs fail several times before they succeed. And even after they succeed, they will fail again. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process. So you have to be able to deal with that. A lot of people can't. Yeah. So you have to figure that out. Yeah. And, I, you know, the, the most sensible thing you can do is start start slow. One thing you can do in a business partnership that you can't do in a personal relationship is say, all right, here's the parameters. Let's find out about each other. Let's, let's be sensible. We're, we're going to do one project and then we're going to see, right? Uh, you, you can't do that with it <laughs> with someone you're falling in love with. Uh, well, I don't know. We used to do it in the early 70s. Did you really? It's, well, it's frowned upon now. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you you know, if you're being honest, that's it is what you're doing, both yeah. of you. And you're talking to your friends about it. You're just, you know, not talking to each other about it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I've known people in situations where, you know, it, it starts to work and they just go with it. And next thing they know, they're so embedded yeah. with, with a partner that when um, uh, other opportunities begin to arise, it can get it can get complicated. You know what? That's a great point. I got to interrupt just to, mm-hmm. just to amplify that. There is a hidden impetus and energy in even a small relationship, even a short relationship, uh, a, a business relationship or a business partnership, an impetus that will push it towards. A, it's almost like it seeks a permanent state. It's like this is a law of of resolution. You know, it's like it's it's a it, it doesn't like ambiguity and it wants to start mm-hmm. to cement. Mm-hmm. And this will happen even with, you know, you, you, no matter how clear you make it with somebody, we're going to do one job together and then we'll re-examine it. And by the time you get to the point where you think you're re-examining it, they're already thinking, no, no, we're partners for life now, mm-hmm. dude. You know, and, right. you know, it, it, the, the level of consciousness uh, this can happen to very conscious and, and aware in individuals. There's a, there's something about the human need for socialization, for relationships, for doing stuff. You know, p- people that look into, you know, what what is the history of human relationships? I mean, when you look into it over the course of recorded history, mm-hmm. most marriages were arranged or were matters of family affiliation or convenience. Um, of, you know, when you're living a subsistence life, mm-hmm. the other partner has to participate in the uh, gathering of of, uh, of resources. Mm-hmm. And if they aren't, you know, you don't do that. Uh, most early civilizations uh, were polygamous. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of strange things going on there. So there is no 
one way of doing it. I right. mean, just, just get that out of your head. There's also no one way of doing partnerships. You can do all kinds of stuff. The reason lawyers get involved is because in uh, in in our society in in western society we've established a a list of expectations of how partners will will happen um partners can screw each other uh meaning meaning you know go south on a deal or or not participate or do things until it gets to the point of money being unfairly distributed stolen embezzled things like that then the law gets involved yeah. law is not going to get involved no matter how much you put in your contract you know you know if you and I did a partnership and I wrote in you know you know section 3 of this contract Kevin will never piss me off you know <laughs> if he does the the contract is null and void you know that's just not enforceable right. in, in in a court of law you what, know, what is piss off, sir? Can we can we define piss, please? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know, I was just pissed. That's all. <laughs> and and uh, you know, uh, you can't legislate petulance. Um, you know, all of us at any given time are wrestling with these multiple demons. You know, I think we talked about it in the the adult in the the control room mm-hmm. uh, show, which was show number two or something. Um, there's a lot of demons vying for control, and some of those demons are childish, they're selfish, they're sociopaths, they're they're all kinds of stuff, and. You know, all of this stuff is going to rear its its ugly head. There will be infidelity in a business relationship. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like I just went through this with a friend of mine. He he said, you know, he said, wow, I just found out this guy I've been doing a lot of work with. This guy's a writer. He says I've been doing a lot of writing for this guy. He thought I, you know, that I was only working with him. When he found out I had another client, he got really mad. You know, he even hung up on me. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I was laughing. I was saying, Yeah, you you never had that happen back when you were dating and you know in high school. He says, Well, yeah, but this is business, and no, it's not. <laughs> it's 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 a meta level of human interaction and relationships and things going on, and people get their heart broken over the strangest things and. Yeah. You know, you know, there, there was um, uh, who was that woman? Early woman comic in the eighties. They actually gave her a TV show. She's pretty funny, but she talked about Boozler. Y- yes, no, not 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 Elaine Boozler, the the other one. Um, and she talked about how uh, she had uh, she had led a white trash life, lived in a trailer, and, and oh, uh, Roseanne Barr. Yes. No, 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 no. Uh-huh. Close, though. But anyway, um, actually, those are two g- good examples. So um, and she talked about how, you know, she got divorced when she, you know, one, one of her jokes that I remember was a young woman, a newlywed came to her sobbing, saying, our mar- my marriage is over. And, and the comic goes, why? And, and the woman goes, he won't put the toilet seat down at night, you know, <laughs> and, and then she goes off on this riff. She goes. Come here, child. Let me tell you a little bit about life. He says this is nothing. When he starts screwing your sister, and <laughs> and spending all of your savings on uh, on uh, betting on a greyhound at the dog races, you know, and then she just goes off on this, and it's hilarious. But in interview, she talks about all of this stuff happened to me. You know, she you know that was her learning ground, mm-hmm. and she made jokes about it. It, it turned out to be a pretty good. Uh, uh, career that she had in the uh, early '80s, but um, you know, it, it was it was the difference between reality and what people will get pissed off about. And I, I've known several divorce lawyers. I have one in my mastermind of very very smart individuals. Yeah. And you know, they talk about how, especially with men, they don't know it's coming. Uh, most divorces are initiated by women. Yeah. And in business, I would say. <sighs> Well, let me let me try to make this point without stepping on anybody's toes. The reason women initiate most of the divorces is that they're more involved in the life of the relationship. The relationship is alive to them, and they understand if it's on life support yeah. or if it's do if it's healthy or, or what's going on. And the man is actually looking at different cues as to whether he's okay with the relationship. And it has to do with his own comfort levels, and it's largely unconscious. So they are almost always dumbstruck they're yeah. cold cock they're they're ambushed by this <clears throat> and um even if it's all their fault right and the woman will say how could you not know that i've been unhappy for two years you know and right. I, I don't know because you kept cooking dinner and you know <laughs> i you know another common one is you know i was i was happier when we were broke 
You know, and then the guy thinks, Excellent look, point. look what I've accomplished for yep. us. And they're going, yep. no, no, you kind of did this for you. You spent nine hours with me in the last four years while you were building this and it sucks. You know, what do you, how could you be so ungrateful? Really good point. And a lot of times, you know, my early relationships that I had in, uh, as, as a copywriter where I would ghostwrite or work with other writers and I worked with a number of the best writers in the biz. I was so lucky. Um, but, um, you know, it was like, what do you want out of this relationship and what what is going to define a successful relationship for this? And for most of the other writers, they were pros looking to find a writer that they could get along with. We didn't need to be best friends, although we became friends mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in some cases. In other cases, we didn't. We never exchanged another word after the relationship was over. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, to have that clarity of what was happening, it was good as a business relationship as long as the pieces worked. And, you know, I was happy with what he was paying me and uh, he was happy with the writing I was doing it was fine. But I, I worked with a, who, a writer who shall remain unnamed, who was huge. He was one of the first A-list writers I have worked with. And I wrote ghost. I ghosted for him. He would pay me two thousand dollars. I would spend a month. And 2000 was a lot back then in the 80s. Uh, I would do most of most of the writing. He might fix it up or so. And then he would give it to the client who would mail a gazillion direct mail pieces. Mm -hmm. And he only made money if the pieces worked. So he paid me two thousand dollars out of his own pocket. Mm -hmm. So as he saw it. He was taking all the risk, and of course, yeah. he was right. Mm-hmm. However, if what I wrote worked, he would make $100,000. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, started to affect me. It was like, why aren't I getting a piece of that? And, you know, eventually, with later writers he worked with, he did start to work with that. But that kind of, that money thing really came in strong and heavy. It was like, I was so happy to receive that two grand. Yeah. And to work with this great guy who, you know, made me do 20 versions, you know, of letters and, you know, had to be perfect. And I learned a lot. Suddenly it was like, well, wait, why? You know what used to be? Wow. Two grand to be able to do this. That's great. Became only two grand. That's all I get. Right. Yeah. Success uh, breeds insecurity, you know, (laughs) and uh, and money will ruin relationships. Just anything. It it ruins every uh, I feel bad for every lottery winner that's ever won it. Um, Yeah. You know, it's a great point. And I I, I think the the knee jerk um, reaction is to just do, hey, let's just call it 50 50 because it's simple. Nobody can bitch. Uh, but when things begin to really take off yep. and and you, you everybody does the sit back and assess and if if you're in a relationship and it's a split and you think you're the only one feeling like you're doing the heavy lifting, uh, guess what? <laughs> Your partner's doing the same thing and uh-huh. having the same conversations. And that's where you talk about that level of communication, finding out how we how are we going to talk through things? You got to sit down and you got to have meetings just like, you know, uh, it should it shouldn't ha- it shouldn't come after a, a, ha- a, a, a hailstorm of FUs. And then you go, all right, let's calm down and talk this out. And then you hug and make up. It, it, it should be you know, just discussed maturely and say, look, you know, obviously we're in a new scenario here and let's let's just write out what we both bring to this and, and, and make sure we're respecting each other, you know, uh, you know, um, completely here. So here's here. I, I just have to dive in. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are two things you need with any business <clears throat> or any kind of relationship, really. <clears throat> Excuse me. You need a prenup. Yeah. So when you get into a business thing, you need to define it can be an email, guys. It doesn't need to be a contract, although some people do contracts. But if you do handshake deals and this is I am a guy who has done handshake my best relationships with clients and and the various partners I've had have all been handshake relationships. Halbert and I didn't have a contract or anything like that. However, I consider myself really lucky that things have turned out the way they have because they could have gone the other way. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you think a handshake is going to do it, that's fine. But go ahead and have some kind of prenup, even if it's an email where you define what's in your head. Here is what I consider a successful relationship, and here is what I consider a deal breaker. And the important part of a prenup is have an exit agreement. 
And the exit agreement can be, you know, with one month or two weeks or immediate, you know, notification, Mm -hmm. we're done. We split up the resources we have right now, 50-50 or 60-40 or 70-30 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and, and we're done. And uh, hopefully we'll still be friends. But, you know, I don't need to give you a six-month leeway. I don't need to give you warning. You know, this can be done. And there's no reason that needs to be given. We don't need to hash this out. Have those exit, exit plans. If you... In fact, a sage relationship advisor would tell you don't go into any relationship for love or money without an exit plan. Yeah. And hopefully it's an exit plan you agree on. If it's not, then it's an exit plan that you have in your hip pocket. That's, you know, that's I I don't recommend that because you will burn bridges as you go through your life. And (laughs) I've been very careful not to burn bridges as, as I go. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, some people are quite comfortable with having a, a list of enemies in their life. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't go to Cleveland because Susie lives there and she'll kill me if she sees me. I mean, yeah. I've known people that just, you know, spread this, you know, swath of destruction through <laughs> other people's lives, you know, all over the world. They yeah, wear like a badge of pride, yeah. Well, or just they're okay with it. It's like, it would, and they, they look at you when you say, I have no one, I, w- I would, you know, there's no one yeah. on the planet that I wouldn't mind bumping into turning a corner in a hotel and they just look at you and blink and go, how can that possibly be true? How can you live a good life without having enemies? Actually, there are a couple of people I don't want to bump into, but it's less than five. Yeah. You know, and this goes all the way back through my life, you know, and I, I consider that a, a victory because the, the people I don't want to bump into are psychopaths. Yeah, it's not, not that you owe them money. What? It's not that you owe them money. No, I've, I've, uh, my business relationships are all very clean. Yeah. You know, and this is, you know, and I've talked about this a lot, like on, on, on the blog where I'm trying to help people out. It's like, I, I had a, a Facebook post where I started out, you know, not everybody likes you. You know, it's like, no matter how good a person you are, yeah. there's going to be some weirdos out there who are going to pick you as their, their person to hate on. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them and the demons in their head and how out of control they are with reality and stuff. And they're just going to pick a fight. They're going to be contrarians and they just need to do it. And you're the guy they pick. Don't take it personally. Get out of it as soon as you can. But for God's sakes, don't get into relationships with them. You know, the good thing about Facebook is sometimes we forget you can just unfriend somebody, you know, with a flick of a button and suddenly they're, they're gone. They can see your post. They can't comment. I think I forget how the the rules work now. Yeah. But you know, you can't grow into business things, you know, into business relationships like that. It's it's often it's an entanglement. Yeah. And by having a prenup and especially an exit agreement, hopefully an exit plan that you agree on. And uh, Stan's been very good at with this, reminding me of this myself because it's a lesson I don't naturally have in my head. I have to remind myself to have exit plans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like for everything. When I speak at, at an event, one of the reasons I like to have road dogs with me, and Kevin, you were a road dog at the, at the Sugarman event for me. Yeah. I need an exit plan to get out of the room physically. Yeah. Sometimes to not be cornered by people who want who do just need a minute because they want to ask me, you know, a question about their business. You know, it's only going to take a minute, John. You know, right. you know, so so before you go pee, you know, let me, you know, <laughs> and it's never a minute and it's never an easy question and I need to be able to get out of there. So you you a good professional will have a whole little suitcase full of exit plans that he can haul out. Yeah. And in a professional thing where you're actually in a situation where money's got to be split, you know to at least get it in writing somewhere. And again, if it's in an email, may not even hold up in court, but I haven't gone to court over any of my business relationship, but I could point to a, an email where I said, Joe, you even answered this email. And I said in that, this is the deal and this is what happens and this is when it's over. Right. You know, this is the exit exit strategy, which I'm doing right now. And then they're left with they can still sputter and argue and all that. But they're the support for their side of the argument is taken away if it's ever been in writing. Right. So that's that's my main recommendation. Yeah, for that's, all. A, that's a good one. And, you know, I, I use a pretty formal agreement with all my clients. And oh, really? I, I do, yeah. I actually learned this from you and Stan when we were... I know, but we never follow our own advice. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, there's there's times where it's, it, it works perfect. I've, I've only had to go to it one time. I've only actually reached out to an attorney one time to see if it was enforceable. And at the end of the day, come on. 
want. It's just, it's only as good as the people signing it. But the, the big takeaway for me as a freelancer is what- Make the, it conscious, yeah. You make it conscious and make and make sure the, their deliverables, the client's deliverables, they, they, they understand that they have deadlines and that if they're not met, it does not mean that I'll push the, you know my deadline back two weeks. It means that you- you lose everything. And that's a hard one to enforce, but I've actually done it. And shockingly, the client said to me, this sucks, but I totally understand. When mm-hmm. can I rebook? <laughs> and did rebook, shockingly. Uh, well, you know, that that whole concept came to me by working with Rodale, who before you do a job with Rodale, you got to sign a 20-page contract. Yeah. And it delineates all of the soft deadlines and the hard deadlines. And it's all from their side. And I'm sure the lawyer was thinking, you know, we're going to handcuff this writer because writers are flaky, blah, blah, blah. The very first job I had with them, I turned it around. They were late delivering the Mm. box of goodies to me Mm -hmm. for the job. And I called it back and I said, you guys got to change the contract. We got to push the deadline back a couple of days. And of course, they got print deadlines and they were horrified. Mm. A writer had never. I was astonished that a writer had never done this before with them. Mm. And I told them, you guys have to give in some, you know, some way or blah, blah, blah. And we actually did push the, the date back. This is my first job with them. Wow. I mean, I, I look back and I, I blush, <laughs> you know, but but I really didn't care at the time. I was having a midlife crisis and I was playing music and I really didn't want the job. And yeah. it, they, I kind of took it reluctantly. And I thought, if it goes south, it goes south. I almost went into it wanting to Sabotage ruin the relationship yeah. because if it worked, then I was going to have to work with, you know, this, these big males. And it, it did work. You know, I beat the control. And, but it was it was like, it was funny because they thought they were handcuffing me when in fact they screwed themselves because they forgot that as good as their contract was and as hefty and 80, you know, 800 pound gorilla as their lawyers were, mm-hmm. they had to fulfill too. And they forgot that their assistant who was supposed to get the package to me by FedEx was a lowly paid you know, assistant who didn't have her eye on the ball and, you know, wasn't going to follow through. And, and they didn't realize they were counting on riders being too shy or too, um, dominated to come back and complain about this. And, you know, that, that was a lesson for me. It was like the dysfunction of a corporation. You know, it's funny, corporations do take on personalities, yeah. They tend to hire people who fit that personality. Mm. They tend to self-reinforce it. It becomes an echo chamber. And for big corporations that then have to bring in freelancers or do affiliate partnerships with other entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. who bring in people from outside the clique or the tribe, it can be a, you know, it can be a real, it can be like, um, in fact, I'll, I will tell a story that Gary had, uh, used to tell, which is – so I'm not speaking out of school. He used to tell this. But when he met Paulette's um, family for the first time, she had, I think, three older brothers. And she was – they were famous for destroying her relationships. Uh-huh. You know, they took great pride in this. Uh-huh. And it, it was a hardcore – I think Bo- – let's call it a Boston family, which, Kevin, you, you know of. You know, these are yeah. hardcore Irish cops. You know, it'll say and Gary walks in the front door and, and they look around and they're almost licking their lips. And he says, hi, I'm the guy who's screwing your sister. What's for dinner? <laughs> and just set them back on their heels. And they had never encountered this. And of course, after the shock, he was in like Flint. You know, he is like they had never encountered somebody who gave as good as they got. Yeah. And that, and he, I don't, you know, he kind of intuitively knew he had to do that. He had been warned about the family. And of course, for a guy like that, it's just, you know, come on, you know, guys, how, how tough are these guys? And the worst they could do would be actually physically assault him, which is highly unlikely. So he took it right to the, right to the edge. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I just find that story hilarious. And I had already been doing that with my clients sometimes. I'd walk in. I stopped wearing ties very early on in my freelance career. All the other freelancers wore ties Mm. and were subservient. And I came in. I thought, yeah, screw that. You know, I I do know more than these guys. And they're bringing me in because somebody screwed up. So I'm going to take advantage of that. And I'd come in. I'd say, you know, I didn't even talk to the VP. So who screwed up on this one? You know, and, you know, after a while, they'd start, you know, because everybody wants to spill. You know, nobody likes to keep secrets. And once they figure. I was this guy who was in on it, you know, I would get all kinds of secrets, you know, told to me by the VP. Well, you know, the, 
the president is getting divorced, you know, so right. blah, blah, blah is happening in the company. I'm not yeah. supposed to know that. I'm a freelancer, but I'd, I'd work this stuff out of them by being the adult in the room. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And that's a muscle that you, you sort of have to just develop over time. You know, it, chances are you won't get it right the first time. Uh, right. I, I went to extremes uh, a couple times with clients and I look back and I go, yeah, I probably could have handled that with a little more suave. Uh, but, you know, um, you learn that you, you're allowed to make those mistakes and relationships come around if your heart's in the right place in the beginning. And you're just trying not to get screwed and you're trying to stand by your guns, you know, is, is free. And and as as a married man, you know, you're going to have to give in at certain times. That's right. Yeah. And Whether you're right or wrong, you're going to have to give in at certain times for the sake of the relationship. That's right. The relationship becomes the third rail of the of, of your life. Right. And, you know, to a degree, you're just establishing that, well, I won't be walked on, but I will be sensible. You know, I will pick my battles. But, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you, there has to be that opening salvo in, in certain situations. And as you go along, you begin to read them better. And, you know, there's all kinds of levels of this, like, you know, chasing down your money, trying to collect back ends. There, there, there's all kinds of um, facets to this. But, you know, John, we're at an hour or so. I know we want to be sensitive um, about time. And, this, you know, we've given a lot of great stuff. Um, but uh, I, want to, I want to give you the floor for any closing comments that we might not have covered. Well, I think you you just reminded me of something. Maybe we can close on this. It's the idea people throw around the term deal killer all the time. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, that's a deal killer. You know, you know, she she smokes. That's a deal killer for me. <laughs> right. Uh, he's. He's, um, you know, he's got a, you know, he's in business with a multi-level marketer guy. That's a deal killer for me. You know, you, you throw the stuff around. I think that's a phrase you've got to re, re-own. You've got to, you've got to stop using it flippantly mm. and you got to start thinking about it because if you're going to get into business and stuff, there will be deal killers. So you, you can't use that word, that, uh, that phrase lightly anymore. Yeah. Um, you have to, you have to understand to, to understand the reality of business situations. It's almost like getting married. If any you know, groom and bride actually sat down and soberly looked at the other person and their life ahead of them. Nobody would ever get married. <laughs> you know, the, the human race would stop propagating and, and, you know, the civilized life would be over as we know it. So there is an element of irrationality that happens. And it's kind of and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The most successful uh, entrepreneurs I know have a you know, go for broke attitude. It's a, you know, one of the big phrases that I've heard over and over again is, ah, what the hell, let's do it and see what happens, which is irresponsible, irrational, illogical, sets you up for possible failure, but it's also the way things get done a lot of times, you know? So it's like, ah, what the heck, let's get married. You know, a lot of people have done that, especially in my parents' generation. You know, they got married at 19, 20, 21 years old. You have no idea, you know, who who you're going to be in two years, let alone what she's going to be in yeah. 15. And yet some of these marriages, you know, my dad was married for 50 years. When my mother died, he liked being married so much. He got married again and he's going on 25 years now with his second wife. Wow. And, um, you know, would still be married to my mother if, 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 if she was around. It's just, you know, he, you know, he, he did, and he's not a, you know, he's not a perfect guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he learned to work within the relationship and he knew what he wanted. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, that's kind of lost in my generation, you know, which as we talked about in the boomer thing, you know, the, the momentary lapses of, you know, rationality causes a lot of pain, you know, and it ripples down when the reason people get married is to have kids and suddenly you have kids and it's like, wait, there were no other reasons why we got married. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. And yeah, you know, I got to tell you, it reminds me of a really funny joke that my friend Billy tells, uh, Billy Gardell. And, um, he, he talks about witnessing his dad talk to his, his wife in a way you know, really harshly, um, you, you know, he was, he was grilling and his, and she comes up and, and she said, have you done this and this and then you're burning those and, you know, just bitching him out. And then he just stands there and he lets her finish and he looks at her and he says, you know what? That's why nobody likes you. <laughs> and, and, and so Billy stands there uncomfortably and he, and she walks away and he says to his dad, he goes, wow. He goes, he goes, he goes, when do you get to say that to your wife? 
His dad goes, you got to be done fucking, kid. <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. You know, that's, that's how you have a 50-year marriage. You, <laughs> you, you reassess priorities as you go. Yeah. Okay. You know, we it, it, that's that's a great way to, to end this thing. It's just know where you're at, and the, the person who is more, you know, the person who is more aware of what's going on is the one who's going to come out the best. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> okay, that's a good way to end the show. Right. So, uh, so listen. You know, we love to hear from you. Uh, uh, www.pi the number four mm.com. Uh, half the fun of doing these shows is, is the great conversations that go on in the threads. So uh, come on over there and tell us your, you know, we love to hear the nightmare stories and the good, of course. But, you know, tell us why relationships. Uh, I love to hear those moments where you, you suddenly realize your significant other is a little crazy. <laughs> that new reality that happens. So, so tell us those nightmare moments, the, the, the head spinning fully around moments, uh, whether it's a, a business partner or a personal relationship. Let's have some fun in, 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 the, in, the, in the comment section. So, John, thanks for another great one. And, yeah, um, fun. and we'll do it again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Right, bye.